May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, page 181 and the bulletin uh, open at the outline, I think, are the essential equipment for the next few minutes. Uh, Life is complicated. Uh, These stories that we read as children were simple, weren't they? Um, The people who were bad were thoroughly bad. Uh, The people who were good were thoroughly good. Everything was clear. And when we become Christians, of course, we aspire to that ideal. We know that our cause is right. Uh, We know that we serve a righteous Lord. And we want to be people who live good, godly, and upright lives. But of course, it's never very long, is it, before we find ourselves face-to-face with the complexity and the confusion of life in a fallen world. We see it in ourselves, because we are not always wise and good. Uh, We're not always holy and pure, in our devotions, in our motivation, in our behaviour, and of course we see it in one another. Now the Bible is very honest, because it not only shows us the triumphs of faith, but it also shows us the, the inconsistencies and the foolishness uh, even of godly people. And uh, so we come to Jephthah. Now, an awful lot of people don't. Uh, I was uh, chatting with an ordained minister earlier this week and telling him that I was preparing to speak about Jephthah on Sunday, and he said, oh, can you just remind me who's he? An awful lot of people don't know about Jephthah because there he is in the middle of a rather long Old Testament book. And anyway, if people do know much about him, they don't want to spend much time with him. Because if people know only one thing about Jephthah, it is that he sacrificed his daughter. Uh, Unless, of course, you agree with the view that this is so ghastly, it couldn't possibly have happened. And some writers have said that he didn't actually sacrifice her. Uh, She was simply banished from the home and denied the opportunity to marry Well, it's a nice theory. But Martin Luther hits the nail on the head when he says, one would like to think he didn't sacrifice her, but the text clearly says that he did. In which case, he's a bad man, isn't he? He's a warning. Uh, He's a man of violence. He thinks and behaves like a pagan. He's bad news. So we might want to pass over Jephthah and move on to something more cheerful because this man and his life make us feel really rather uncomfortable. So it's curious, isn't it, that the prophet Samuel, giving his farewell address to Israel, says that the Lord sent Jephthah to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. That's 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. According to God's prophet, Jephthah 
was sent by God. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, a verse we're becoming rather familiar with, Jephthah stars as one of the heroes of faith. It's actually the only reference to him in the New Testament. But in that passage, Jephthah stands alongside Samuel, David, Gideon, Samson, and Barak. And the interesting thing is that in both of those passages, there's no hint of reproach. Our assessment might be that this man sacrificed his daughter, isn't he terrible? But that's not actually the verdict of Scripture. According to Scripture, he's part of that vast cloud of witnesses cheering us on from heaven, even this morning. Now, I don't want to whitewash Jephthah. Uh, I think probably of all the judges, he's the trickiest. And I'm not going to claim that I've sorted out all the difficulties or that we can do that this morning. But in view of Scripture's verdict, we can't simply tiptoe around him and pretend he's not there. So for just the next few minutes, let's suspend all our preconceived ideas about him and let's listen to what the storyteller actually says. First, please won't you notice Jephthah's context. Uh, That's chapter 10, verse 6, through to the end of chapter 10, that's verse 18. Verse 6 begins with a formula that we've heard quite a lot already. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Yes, we've heard it before, but there is something rather unusual here. Just look at the very long list of gods that Israel was serving at this time. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. It's a longer list than anywhere else in Judges, uh, as if the people of God were somehow more lost than ever at this point. As a result, they came under God's judgment, and the language that's used to describe Israel's distress is unusually strong. So verse 7 The Lord sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they were oppressed, Uh, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead. And at the end of verse 9, Israel were in great distress. Four different Hebrew words to describe their misery. And so, verse 10, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And uh, as always in Judges, it's crying out to the Lord that begins to set events in a different direction. But this time, the rescue is neither immediate nor automatic. Because the Lord answers their prayer, I think, with impeccable logic in verses 11 to 14. And what he basically says is this. Uh, You've deserted me to go and serve all these other gods. Go and ask them for help. But Israel persevered with their praying, verse 15. 
the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And then you find this absolutely astonishing phrase at the end of verse 16. Can we all see the end of verse 16 in our Bibles? And the Lord could bear Israel's misery no longer. You see, that's telling us that there is a divine passion that lies behind the story of Jephthah. And friends, this is our God. And there's a burning in his heart at the misery of his people. He could bear it no longer. And in verse 17, the the armies of the Ammonites and the Israelites are mobilised. But the big question at the end of chapter 10 is, well, who's going to lead Israel against her enemies? And so, secondly, we come to Jephthah's call and character. It's there in verse 1 of chapter 11. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior... His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. So almost the first thing that we learn about Jephthah is that he was a rejected man. Yes, he was a mighty warrior, which is the phrase that's also used to describe um, Gideon, And David, very interestingly, in the Old Testament, um, it is God who is most frequently described as a mighty warrior. But the circumstances of Jephthah's birth were shameful. His mother was a prostitute. And that, I think, is indicating something of the level to which Israel had sunk In all probability, she was a cult prostitute and therefore associated with one of the pagan gods. And the overriding experience of Jephthah's life was rejection. He was driven away by his family in verse 2. And in verse 7, when the elders of Gilead send for him, he says, didn't you hate me? and drive me from my father's house. So it wasn't only rejection by his family, there was a communal hatred of this man. He fled to Tob, which is outside of Israel, where it seems that he was an outlaw, and he gathered a a group of adventurers around him. Uh, If you've got an ESV, you'll find that it says there they were worthless fellows, uh, which sounds even worse. But the same thing is said of David when he was being pursued by Saul. Uh, He also became an outlaw uh, with a group of worthless fellows around him, and we don't hold that against David, so we shouldn't hold this against Jephthah either. Because the emphasis in the text is that this rejected man, though he was rejected, was also chosen. 
He was chosen in desperation by the elders of Gilead, verse 5. But of course, behind that is a deeper choice. God's choice. And it's very interesting in verse 5 that the elders of Gilead went to get him despite the fact that they'd originally driven him out. And although he was rejected, eventually he willingly responds to them. Now here's something interesting. There is a striking parallel in this story between Israel's treatment of God and Israel's treatment of Jephthah. You see, Israel rejected the Lord and it was only after a very long time that they turned to him. The Lord says, why are you coming to me? But Israel persists in their pleading to the Lord and eventually the Lord responds. And there is an identical pattern with Jephthah that I think the storyteller wants us to see. Jephthah is rejected And only in a situation of dire need do Israel come to him. Jephthah says in effect, why are you coming to me? But Israel persists in pleading with him and he responds. So God used a rejected man to save an unworthy people. And of course that happened again, didn't it? Isaiah 53 describes Christ as despised and rejected by men. And the New Testament speaks of Christ as rejected by men but chosen by God, 1 Peter 2.4. Now the point is, as we see nearly every week, that God uses people who are not necessarily the obvious candidates. Let's think about that as we embark on this network evangelism. Rather, God stoops to use the most weak and unworthy people to accomplish his kingdom purposes. And that's very good news for us. But then there are a couple of surprises in Jephthah's character. Um, Clearly, Jephthah had a reputation as a mighty warrior. That's the reason the elders of Gilead want him. That's obvious, isn't it, in verse 8, where the elders say to him, come with us to fight the Ammonites. So the reason they want him is because he's good at fighting. So when he does eventually turn up, what are we expecting? We're expecting a battle. That's what Jephthah was good at. But what actually happens? Well, what happens first is restraint. Patient diplomacy. Verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you got against us that you've attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites replies with a rather curt message, you took our land, we want it back. Verse 14, Jephthah sent back messengers again. And then the whole of Jephthah's message has been recorded for us 
by the Holy Spirit. Now please notice this. From verse 14 all the way through to verse 27, we have Jephthah's extended reply to the king of the Ammonites. 14 verses. Now why would that be? What does the Spirit of God want us to take away from that? Well, it's showing us, you see, that Jephthah had a detailed knowledge of Israel's history and the Old Testament. Because, you see, he describes what is elsewhere reported in Exodus, Numbers and Deuteronomy about Israel's journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. He explains that the Israelites wanted to avoid conflict with Edom and Moab. And when they were refused passage, they went all the way round and then they asked to go across to, to the Jordan, but they were attacked by the Amorites to whom the land belonged and the victory was given by the Lord. Now won't you please notice that Jephthah stresses that. Verse 21, look at verse 21. He says, Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his men into Israel's hands. Verse 23. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? So Jephthah has got a very deep understanding of Israel's history and of scripture. So let's pause on that for just a second and let me ask you, do you think that Jephthah is actually a violent thug who doesn't know his Bible? I rather think not. I think the evidence in the text is crystal clear that he was a man of restraint who knew the Old Testament really rather well. And not only is he restrained, he is also dependent. So who's the first person in the passage to refer to the Lord? Well, it's Jephthah in verse 9. He says to the elders, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, will I really be your head? And then in verse 27, rather than trusting in his own skill as a mighty warrior, he's content to leave the outcome of the conflict entirely in the Lord's hand. Verse 27, I have not wronged you, but you're doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. So here we've got a man who is actively dependent on God. It's the Lord who's going to decide these things. That's his mindset. He looked to the Lord for victory in verse 9, and he looks to God, the judge, for victory in verse 27. Now notice how the Lord responds in verse 29. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. 
Now that is also said, isn't it, of Othniel and Gideon and Samson, who we'll get to next week, God willing. Jephthah is God's man. So I've got to tell you, I was astonished to find that the ESV study Bible notes say that Jephthah was not raised up by God, but by men who did not seek God's approval. Now, I find that an absolutely remarkable statement. Not only because of verse 29, but also because of 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, which says, and I quote, The Lord sent Jephthah. So how anybody can say that Jephthah was not raised up by God is completely beyond me. And if we think that the qualities of restraint and dependence that we've seen in Jephthah are there in the text, are they not really important qualities for us as well, Christians today? I mean, when we're facing difficult situations, we don't simply rush in, do we, like a bull in a china shop. We know that we need the Lord and that we're dependent on him to get us through the mess. And of course, those two qualities of restraint and dependence were perfectly demonstrated, weren't they, in the Lord Jesus? Do you remember that uh, when he's arrested... Jesus said that he could have called on legions of angels to come and rescue him. He could have flattened all of his enemies. He could have wiped out the entire Sanhedrin with a bolt of lightning. But he didn't. In order to fulfill the Father's purposes to save us instead of himself, he showed restraint. And he also showed dependence, didn't he? Um, So John 14.31, Jesus says, The world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Now friends, I want us to see that in some measure we see these qualities more than a thousand years before Jesus in the life of Jephthah. But of course we tend not to hear about him as much as we should. And now with all of that we come to the difficult bit. Jephthah's vow. Now it's very, very interesting that when the rest of scripture reflects on Jephthah, there is no word about the vow. The reflection is entirely on the salvation that God worked through him. So, friends, let's not overlook it. There is a salvation here. Because the end of verse 32 says that the Lord gave the Ammonites into his hands. And his daughter even says it in verse 36. And when scripture looks back on this man's life, this is the focus. Jephthah is a deliverer. He is a saviour. And it's just another reminder, isn't it, that God can and does use people despite their imperfections. 
I was converted under the ministry of a man called Dick Lucas, who without question is one of the finest preachers of the last generation. And in one of his sermons he said this, If you knew my heart, you wouldn't come and listen to me. And if I knew your heart, I wouldn't want to come and speak to you. Now there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? We're all much more fallen than we realise or want other people to know. And so was Jephthah. He was a terrific deliverer, but he came under tremendous spiritual pressure. And you see, that brings us to one of the big themes in Judges, which is spiritual warfare. I know the ladies were thinking about this yesterday. But in particular, Satan frequently counterattacks after victory has been won. This is a really, really important point for you and I to get hold of this morning. After the victory is won, Satan wants to take back the territory. We saw that in Gideon, didn't we? It was after the great victory that he made his golden ephod, which became a snare to him and his whole family, and all Israel worshipped it. And it was after the victory that we're told he had lots of wives, but he also had a concubine by whom he had a son called Abimelech, who murdered his 69 half-brothers. That caused a lot of trouble. But it was trouble after a victory. So, friend, please be very careful in your Christian life. There will be times when you think you've achieved some marvellous victory, and no doubt you have. The Lord has wonderfully answered your prayers. Um, perhaps a member of your family has been converted. Or the Lord has used you to bring healing into a relationship that's been broken for years. You're rejoicing. That is the moment that Satan wants to get his knife into you. Let's have one New Testament example to keep us on our toes. Keep a finger in Judges. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 on page 810. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, page 810. Now, this is where the Apostle, I think, gives us a marvellous insight into the spiritual battle that is always going on behind the scenes. Verse 27, Paul says, No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Isn't that interesting? After I have preached to others. So picture it in your mind. Paul preaches this absolutely terrific sermon and uh, after the service over coffee, people want to come and talk to him about it, but they can't find him. Everyone's saying, where's Paul? 
and uh, he's in a cupboard or a small room and he's kneeling and he's pleading with God to save him from the enemy and he's subjecting his body to the control of the Holy Spirit. So friends, after the victory there is usually a battle and if Paul needs help, so do you and I. Well, come back to Judges because um, I think it's very instructive for us to see where the attack came from in Jephthah's life because it came from within himself. Actually, chapter 12, which uh, we haven't got time to look at this morning, tells us that he was also attacked by the people of God. We'll have to look at that another time. But this is important Because we Christians tend to struggle more with ourselves, I think, than we do with other people. And that was certainly the case with Jephthah and his famous vow, which you'll find in verse 30. Verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now what in the wide world is going on here? How are we to understand it? Well, let me say this, that taking vows was a very big part of Old Testament life. In Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are no less than 41 references to taking a vow. And in the book of Psalms, there are 12 references to vows as part of an appropriate response to God. But the question is, why does Jephthah make this vow? He's the only judge that does it in these circumstances and it seems tragic and unnecessary. Martin Luther calls it foolish and superstitious. So I think there is a sense in which Jephthah made his own problem. But that's familiar, isn't it? Have you ever made your own problem? I know I have. I mean, I guess we've all done it, haven't we? And Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25, says it is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vow. In the commentaries, there are an awful lot of judgments about Jephthah's vow. The problem is, you just can't prove whether those particular views are right or not. They may be right, they may be wrong, but nearly all of them are not tied to the text. So please won't you notice this. The Hebrew of verse 31 does not make it clear whether Jephthah is anticipating human sacrifice or animal sacrifice. Uh, If you belong to the um, anti-Jephthah camp, then you'll decide that he was thinking about a human sacrifice from the beginning. But I find it very interesting that both the NIV and the ESV 
both opt for the translation that says whatever comes out of the door, not whoever. Uh, The ESV has a footnote with whoever in it, but they've chosen whatever as the most likely translation for the main text. And clearly, Jephthah was absolutely beside himself, wasn't he, when his daughter came out of the door. He obviously wasn't expecting it. And then immediately you and I think, well, hang on a moment, didn't didn't Jephthah know Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, which says this, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, that is to say the Canaanite way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Now, I think the application is obvious to us, isn't it? It is, don't make a stupid vow. And if you do, it is a lesser evil to break it than to keep it. Now, that is, at one level, a simple application to take away, but there's more going on here. Because what we need to ask is, What does the storyteller want us to know about this? And there are two things in particular. The first is his daughter. His daughter is really rather remarkable, isn't she? She comes to greet him after the battle. She's rejoicing. She's dancing. She is his only child. And he tears his clothes, he speaks of his his misery and his wretchedness and of the vow he can't break. Now look at what she says in verse 36. Can we all see verse 36? My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. Yeah, you see, the trouble with Jephthah's daughter is she lives on a completely different planet to us, doesn't she? She's so far removed from us in her thinking that we can't, we can't grapple with her. We don't know what to do with her. And therefore what happens is we pay no attention to her. And yet, the whole focus of verses 35 to 40 is on the daughter. Because, you see, if anybody has the right to be upset with Jephthah, it's not the commentators writing hundreds of years afterwards, is it? It's Jephthah's daughter at the time. Isn't that right? And she honours her father. And she positively urges him to do to me what you promised. Keep your vow. And uh, in my Bible at home, but not in the church Bible, I've got a cross-reference in the margin to Luke chapter 1 verse 38, where Mary is talking to the angel Gabriel. And she says... May it be to me, as you said. 
Now I think that's a pretty big clue that there is something about this girl's attitude and submission that is beautiful. This is not demeaning. There's something about this girl that some sort of sparkles in the story, a story which you and I find really rather uncomfortable. And notice the reason for her distress. You see, what would you expect her distress to be? You would expect it to be, help, dad's going to kill me. But that's not what she says, is it? She's distressed because I will never marry. Her distress is about remaining a virgin because that means the family line will die out. Because she's the only child. And while you and I don't know what to make of Jephthah, Israel commemorated the daughter. Look at verse 39. End of verse 39. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. So it wasn't two minutes silence, was it? It was four days every year. They didn't do that for anybody else in the Old Testament. But they did it for her. Because, you see, they recognised something very, very special about this daughter. Now think about it. Where did she learn to think like that? Except, of course, at home. And from the scriptures. So the text emphasises his daughter. But the second thing that the storyteller emphasises is Jephthah's belief, his conviction. Now you and I might not like this, But the plain fact of the matter is that Jephthah was a man of principle. And I don't think he was ignorant of scripture. I mean, we've already said, why are we given that long passage recording Jephthah's message to the king of the Ammonites? Surely one reason is to tell us that this man knew his Bible. And I think that was his problem. You see, you and I might quote certain verses at him and say, look, you shouldn't be doing this. But Jephthah says, but I made a vow. And he might well take us to um, Numbers chapter 30 and verse 1, which says, Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. (laughs) That's clearly what he believed, isn't it? I've made a vow to the Lord I can't break. And it's clearly what the daughter believed too. Verse 36, my father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you promised. 
Now, of course, Jephthah was tragically wrong because for whatever reason, he, he failed to hear the command of God that prohibits human sacrifice. But he's quite clearly committed to what he has understood from the text of Scripture. And once again, can I say to us, this is realistic, isn't it? I mean, sometimes people do tie themselves up in the most amazing knots, but they're thoroughly sincere as to why they're there. And as we reflect on this, even though Jephthah did the wrong thing, friends, friends, isn't there, isn't there some challenge to you and me with our superior spiritual light? And we do have superior spiritual light, don't we? Do we obey God, come what may, or when it hurts, do we trim our obedience? Is there ever a point when we will say, this is what God says, and although the consequences for me might be terrible, I'm going to do it. That's what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did. That's what the apostles did. And it seems to me that the point is this. That if there is no point at which you and I will lay everything, even our family and ourselves, on God's altar, if there is no point at which you and I will do that, I wonder who we're actually following. Because the Lord Jesus, who we follow, told us to take up our cross. And I think there's another question that comes out of the text, which is perhaps not always given the attention it deserves, and it's this. Could God ever ask such a thing as human sacrifice? I mean, I assume Jephthah knew Genesis 22. What did God tell Abraham to do? To sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loved. So it's not actually true, is it, that God never asks for human sacrifice. But in that instance, of course, Genesis 22, God intervened at the last moment. And maybe that's what Jephthah was hoping, even as he held the knife in his hand. But no intervention came. Because God does not always, in this life, rescue us from our foolishness. And certainly, Jephthah here was extremely foolish. But on another day, there was another sacrifice of a beloved one. A son, both human and divine, by whose blood the guilt of unworthy saints in both the Old Testament and in the New, the guilt of Jephthah and of me, find cleansing and forgiveness.
And so you see in the end, we all find ourselves on level ground with Jephthah. Imperfect men and women of faith saved by grace. And on that day when Jesus returns, none of us will be looking down from our high horse on Jephthah or any other sinner. So in conclusion, is there one great lesson that we can take from this strange man who lived so long ago? I want to give the last word to Michael Wilcock, who has written, I think, one of the better commentaries on judges. I've given you the quote on the back of the green question sheet. You might like to follow it. He says this. The thing which our writer brings to the fore is the thing in which the human judge, that is Jephthah, does reflect the divine judge. In Old Testament and in New, God shows himself as the God who never goes back on his word. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill, says the prophet? Jephthah was a man of faith. And he did heed at any rate the message of God concerning faithfulness, whatever confusions may have accompanied it. What he did, the sacrifice of his daughter, is a thing all scripture condemns. Why he did it, in order to keep his word, is a thing all scripture commends. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we have been wrestling this morning with a difficult passage in your word. But like all scripture, it has been placed here for our encouragement and our learning. So we don't want to sit in judgment on Jephthah or anybody else, but rather to test ourselves. We thank you that as you persevered with Jephthah and used him to save your people, so you will persevere with us, weak and flawed as we are, and use even us to achieve your kingdom purpose in the lives of others. Open our eyes to the devil's schemes so that after the victories you give us, we might not give room to the evil one. And help us, Lord, to be those who use words carefully, for we bear the image of the living word made flesh who gave his life that we might be saved. And we ask it, in his wonderful name. Amen.